This is The Global Gambit. Good afternoon, everyone. It's The Global Gambit, and welcome back. It's been a little bit of a while, and I do uh, apologize for the rather tardiness I've had in uh, keeping up to date with uh, posting on the podcast. Uh, We've got some exciting things happening on the YouTube channel, as well as on Twitter. But the main reason is also because of what happened on Saturday, early October, about 6.30 a.m., the militant force known as Hamas launched a very unexpected and sizable offensive into Israel. It caught many people around the world off guard, no one more so than the Israelis. Um, And one of the core points that will be, I think, sticking throughout this entire situation long after these events hopefully have subsided quickly uh, will be how on earth the Israeli intelligence community failed to pick up on this, on these developments. Uh, Hamas and Israel have a long-standing, complicated and tense relationship which has uh, in numerous years flared up, but none so to the extent that we are seeing right now. I'm not going to give too much of a backdrop because I do assume many of you who follow the podcast will be aware of the situation uh, and the core details behind it. But as we enter um, the week, um, one week since these events began at the time of recording, one begins to wonder what this means for a large-scale operation that the Israelis seem intent on carrying out. It's not entirely clear as to yet where and how the Israeli uh, Defense Forces or IDF intend to carry out um, such an operation, but it is something that given the rhetoric from Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, and others like the Defence Minister and a spokesman of the IDF, Israel has no intention of uh, leaving the Strip until they, until what they believe to be the eradication, or at least a uh, firm um, suppression of Hamas and its, um, and its threat to uh, the State of Israel. Now, of course, this is a highly contentious and sensitive matter, and I'm not going to pretend that we can cover everything in a single 45-minute podcast, but what I do want to do in this episode is to particularly focus on what a ground offensive, what a ground operation could actually look like, because up until now, most um, exchanges focus on uh, missile barrages, and if one side launches one, then they're responded in proportionality, or what's known as graduated response, um, from the other side. Um, but given that there was also a ground assault by Hamas, the Israeli Defense Force have decided that they want to respond in kind and have mobilized upwards of 300,000 troops. Um, we haven't seen numbers like that since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And indeed, many people are drawing increasing parallels to that because of the potential consequences um, and spillover effects that an Israeli response into Gaza could cause for uh, another major non-state actor known as Hezbollah, which is very prominent in Lebanon and has seen a few skirmishes with Israel in the past few days uh, across the border into Lebanon. There are also issues concerning uh, Syria and some factions out there, as well as the um, omnipresent role that Iran has in, uh, in, in its relationship to these groups. But joining me today to talk about these is a couple of good friends of mine, and hopefully more, which is uh, Patrick Fox. Patrick is a U.S. Air Force veteran and uh, a alumni of University College London, and someone who I've had the great pleasure of talking with on the uh, on the streets of Twitter Spaces many a time. Joining me also is Brian Cunningham. He's a former CIA analyst and a cybersecurity expert, and also a writer and a drummer. And I'm very glad he's been able to join us to provide uh, a slightly different perspective, but equally valuable uh, one as well. 
I think maybe we can jump over to you, um, Brian, maybe for an initial question. But like, do you have any sense as an intelligence expert why the Israelis failed to pick up on this entire situation? And how do you think they are now responding to it in the uh, in the past week? Wait, this isn't a drumming podcast? I do apologize. No, we can we can knock out some beats in the future for sure. All right. Well, thank, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. One of my day jobs when I was working um, in the National Security Council under Condi Rice was I was the liaison to the commission that investigated the September 11th attacks on the United States, whereas everyone knows we had a massive intelligence failure 20-some years ago. And they had it's amazing reports, worth reading. They almost won a Pulitzer Prize. But their primary conclusion was that the United States intelligence community suffered from a, quote, failure of imagination, close quote. And I suspect, ultimately, we're going to find <clears throat> that there was a little bit of that here. It, it, on its face, it is absolutely baffling, particularly given the reports that were on CNN yesterday. I haven't verified them, but I watched them, of the training camps for the Hamas are we allowed to say terrorists on here? Terrorists, like dozens of yards from the from the border with Israel, and it goes on and on. It seems like a massive intelligence failure. I suspect ultimately we're going to find that the audacity of the operation, including training dozens of yards from the border, was just something that the Israeli intelligence services could not imagine. They it's hubris, right? They overestimated the degree of control and knowledge they had about the next door's territory. Now, let me say one other thing about this. I don't think this applies to Iran. So I find it, I can imagine a situation where Israel was fooled here, and mainly because we were fooled before 9-11. But I can't imagine Iran was. And the main reason I can't imagine Iran was, putting aside their funding, their training, their public support, is this proxy force that Iran funds would have been riddled with intelligence sources and methods. They they would have had their phones. They would have had human assets in the midst of Hamas. And the idea that Iran didn't know about this ahead of time, if not approve it, is even more, to me, implausible than Israel didn't know about it ahead of time. So um, jumping over to you, Patrick, you want to add anything to Brian? But from a, a military standpoint, you know, how much do you think that there is a what impact did the intelligence failure, I guess, have on the IDF's ability to to immediately respond? It was it was a you know uncharacteristically slow and jumbled, if if that's the right word to use, sort of initial twenty four hours, thirty six hours. You know, Saturday we hardly saw really any initial military um, response, and 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 I do remember seeing some imagery and footage. Apparently, there's so much disinformation, which we must be obviously wary of. But that there had been, you know, uh, police officers and and military personnel, I think, killed in the in the surrounding settlements of the immediate Gaza Strip area. What, what, what did you feel in the first 24 early days, given uh, in the military sense? Well, that's right. What, what we saw initially was basically what you'd see when a military force is caught off guard and it's forced to basically catch as catch can. And what I mean by that is you didn't see a lot of necessarily organized resistance. It was who's in the area and what's happening in the area. So we're seeing a lot of reports of 
uh, IDF personnel, either officers or, or enlisted, that just happened to be near a kibbutz that they knew was under attack, and they just went marched to the sound of the guns, so to speak. And a lot of them were killed because there was a great deal of confusion in the early hours. And with confusion, no one can organize. And so you get a lot of disorganized resistance, which is extremely dangerous for the individual soldier. And we saw a lot of, of untrained or, um, or Israeli recruits. There, there is now a story about a young uh, platoon commander who was on, an, on exercise with, with her trainees. And they and several other instructors were ambushed. The instructors got their recruits out of there and held off you know, Hamas terrorists, but at the cost of several more senior personnel. She was killed in action. So it's, the, it's that kind of thing. You'll see whoever's in the area is going to resist as best as they can. But when you're surprised, and a lot of IDF personnel were apparently killed in their beds. Uh, we, we've seen reports, some confirmed, some not, of several barracks that were hit, and they just had no time to respond. So I'm just going to remind everyone, if you're joining, welcome to the space. This is initially a podcast. I've got a couple of uh, great uh, colleagues um, who I respect greatly for their their perspectives. This is an objective analysis. It's not um, a uh, taking sides onto the matter of who's right and wrong. We're just trying to understand uh, what is potentially going to happen um, and what it means for the uh, for the potential short to medium term and possibly longer term geopolitical ramifications. So uh, again, sticking with you, Patrick. You know, we've got one of the most right wing, if not the most right wing, government in. Uh, in Israel's history, and Netanyahu, who is usually you know a pretty uh, a pretty unsightly chap, uh, is 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 joined by some really unsightly people um, in 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 the coalition government. There's now been an emergency one formed, but throughout my appreciation of the military political relationship is how much sometimes disconnect there can be between the two. And so given that we've now seen this emergency unity government formed, the scrambling to try and get a hold of the situation in southern Israel, which I think they largely did a couple of days ago, what do you think that could mean in uh, going forward as, as we launch this uh, seeming ground offensive? What role do you think the government is going to take or, or tone? What rhetoric? Is it, is it going to be as strong forthright as we've seen, or, or they may change the um, the, 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 the uh, approach a little bit. Well, without over-dramatizing it, there are a lot of peacetime unsavory figures that turn out to be fairly good wartime leaders. And I think this is this is the case with Bibi. He he whatever his his faults and his foibles, he is the kind of man you want in this kind of situation because he understands the military and he, he understands how how to deal with this. Um I said like I guess 24 hours after this started that we'd see a rally around a flag effect and I was Roundly criticized for that, but the um, the opposition parties have correctly, in my view, said whatever our political differences, we're going to sort those out once this is over. And obviously, we've seen um, a session from many of them saying, "Yes, we will form a unity government. Yes, we will join an emergency coalition for the war." Um, as far as the rhetoric, I have not seen rhetoric this strident out of the IDF. I, I just haven't nor the Israeli political class. Bibi himself has basically said the goal is to destroy Hamas. Uh, you have Gallant, who is the defense minister, has said much the same thing. I believe he referred to Hamas as animals and effectively said, you know, if we whatever Gaza is now, it will not be once we're done. And that's a fairly clear message from, from a political appointee. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room for that if they are serious. 
Uh, Brian, uh, what, what, what do you want to add to that? Do you think that we can see uh, the intelligence part of this improving? What role do you think that the political military dynamics could play into the um, success or efficacy of the, uh, of the uh, response on, uh, in Gaza? It's going to be difficult for them to make significant changes to their intelligence structure and also the way they operate and the way they analyze and the way they disseminate information in the middle of a war. That said, I suspect that one of the many ways that the United States is assisting Israel right now is with uh, probably some of our veterans of the 9-11-2001 debacle to try to help Israel learn lessons from our mistakes and also from their own mistakes. I did want to add, though, on the political front, I am no expert in Israeli politics. I tend to agree that, you know, Churchill's a great example of somebody that, you know, wasn't particularly helpful during peacetime. And in fact, as soon as the war was over, they voted him out. But arguably, the UK wouldn't have survived the war without him. And it feels like Netanyahu might be that same person. I mean, imagine somebody saying a stand-up comedian would be defending Ukraine against Russia successfully for two years. That that's a bit of a shocker as well. But I also want to make a point about the U.S. political situation. <clears throat> and that is, I think there's a perception that because you have some loud, uh, flamboyant, ex-president members of Congress and thought leaders in the United States, that there's a major division about supporting Israel through this operation, however long it lasts. Uh, you'd be very wrong to think that. There are those voices, but first of all, they're not in the Biden administration. And if anything, this politically helps Trump be in the future because he's perceived, you know, with some evidence for all of his faults as being um, a little bit stronger in support of Israel when he was president. But at this point, Biden has to be all in. I mean, we saw this thing that happened on the Harvard University campus, which I've never seen anything like in my time. And, you know, I went to college in the 80s where <clears throat> the, pro, the pro-Palestinian protesters and signers of a letter supporting Hamas essentially were run out of town at Harvard University, one of the most left thinking universities in the United States, to, up into and including jobs being withdrawn uh, by private sector employers. Now, you can argue whether that's fair or not fair, but my point is there is a massive political consensus inside the United States, no matter how it's reported internationally, in support of what Israel is doing. And I do not believe Biden can politically show one inch of difference with Israel if he wants to get reelected. No, I, I think Brian has that exactly right. Harvard's faculty may have done that under duress, but they did do it. Uh, you, and the, the NYU Student Bar Association president that Brian was referring to uh, lost their job immediately. The, the law firm that that person had been slated to join after graduation made a very public statement about exactly why they had lost their job. So I, I think he's right about this. Oh, and by the way, by the way, I, let me just add, I, I said Harvard was one of the most left wing universities in the United States. NYU is probably even further left. 
Okay. And well, no, I mean, okay, to that point, I, I've been struggling to keep up with the US situation. I, I mean, as, as I pointed out uh, for listeners just yesterday, the the US doesn't actually have a, a an actual ambassador. Now, that is different to a absolute non-diplomatic presence. You know, the, the US still has a functioning embassy in, in Israel, but it doesn't have an actual ambassador, which during a time of crisis management like this is is still pretty significant. And is undermined more by the fact that there is a political paralysis within the government, making it all that much harder for one to be appointed. Now, I don't want to get too much into partisan politics of the US, but how much do you guys think, maybe Patrick, if we come to you first, the ongoing pressure of the GOP candidates, we've seen a lot of different rhetoric, uh, Nikki Haley, you know, saying that the war on Israel is a war on America, Lindsey Graham, I know he's not a GOP candidate, but you know, he's a vocal chap who basically says, we want to launch uh, rockets and bombs into into Iran's backyard, very helpful rhetoric. Uh, what do you think the sort of broader political sphere is 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 having on Biden's ability to, to form and and sustain a coherent strategy, which is de- is deterrent, but not you know escalatory, if that makes sense. Right. Well, I would point out that the Senate is in charge of uh, ambassadorial confirmations of the U.S., so that the the gridlock has been a, pr- a combination of political opposition and and the individuals chosen by the administration to fill the slots. As far as the political response, uh, as Brian alluded to earlier. Yes, Biden is getting extreme pressure from the right, from the from the uh, based just pro-Israeli section. Patrick, yeah, let me just jump uh, in on that while we get while we get Patrick back. We've had this conversation yesterday. I, I think this analysis of perceived U.S. dysfunctionality on Israel because there's not a Senate confirmed ambassador is overblown. Um, first of all, as we said, the House of Representatives, which is the part of the Congress that's in unusual chaos, Congress is always in some amount of chaos. Um, they have nothing to do with the confirmation of ambassadors. More importantly, Jack Lew, who's the nominee, has been in, you know, 10 different jobs over the years, including Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. So you can be sure that his views are being factored into whatever decisions are being made. He's not just sitting on the sidelines. And then third, um, you know, there is a completely functioning staff with the Charge d'Affaires. Secretary of State was there yesterday. So I think... I'm not too concerned about that, but more importantly, I just want to make clear, it, it actually has nothing to do with Israel. It's, it, you know, sometimes the U.S. will not put an ambassador somewhere or will withdraw an ambassador from somewhere to send a diplomatic signal. That's not what this is. This is just a fight between the Senate and Biden about whether Jack Lou's the right person, and I assume that will get resolved pretty quickly uh, now, given the crisis. On the larger <clears throat> domestic political situation in the U.S., I would not worry too much about Lindsey Graham's position. Lindsey Graham is widely viewed at this point, unlike 20 years ago, by the way, on both sides of the aisle as kind of a clown. Uh, no one pays attention to him anymore. He has almost no influence, maybe no influence on the Biden administration. Um, but I do think that Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and the other Republican candidates trying to find any way to convince the Republican base in the United States that they're more anti-Biden than Trump uh, are going to seize on this. And I think you're going to see almost like a arms race between the candidates as to who can be more pro-Israel. And I, I think that'll have some effect on the race, although absent something like Donald Trump's actual death, uh, I think he will be the nominee. Certainly. I mean, I don't see this directly, obviously. We're, we're mainly focusing on the here and now. 
uh, and the next 24 to 48 hours and, and thereafter. But I think it's important to keep the broader well, domestic and geopolitical um, context in mind when we're talking about how this plays into not just the psyche, perhaps, of the IDF, but uh, also the uh, uh, the Americans in the region. The British have also sent down some uh, a couple of maritime vessels as well. But and and I think I want to segment of the uh, of the conversation by just asking, what do you think about the role of the US in the immediate uh, area? Uh, there's a lot of concern that the US, by just even having two uh, carrier groups, as far as I can tell, including the largest you know uh, aircraft carrier in the world, bobbing off the coast of Israel and Lebanon, is not going to help things from a um, from an optics point of view with. Syria, with Iran, with Yemen, uh, and other countries that have you know no relations with Israel at all. What what do you think about the the US? Um, you know, do you think they're going to keep their their, their American uh, the maritime presence there for a while? Uh, and if so, do you think that that will just not allow things to de-escalate because it's just not welcome? Or just curious for your thoughts on that particularly. I think. That right now what the U.S. is doing is they're trying to send in any way they can think of, including the visit of Secretary Austin, the, the strongest possible signal that not just Iran, but also Hezbollah and all the other regional players need to just keep their powder dry and not interfere. And I think the com combined strike capability of the Eisenhower group and the Gerald Ford group uh, will mean we could really do some serious damage if we wanted to, including reaching uh, Tehran. But I don't think we want to. I think that's. I think the reason we're coming out so strong right now is the hope that we, if we deter significantly enough, we won't have to do anything. Now, there is a real escalatory danger, though, uh, in my opinion, because and the militemen, you know, Pat, Patrick comes back, or Patrick joins, or John comes back. I'll defer to them, but. I am certain that there are U.S. boots on the ground in the territory of Israel right now, whether they're intelligence operatives or special forces or special special forces. And I believe we will be involved if there's a rescue operation of American hostages. And if, God forbid, we have a Black Hawk Down type situation where we have commandos in, on the ground and they get taken, one, it's a huge propaganda victory for uh, Hamas to say, be able to say, oh, this is a joint American-Israeli war, even though it wouldn't be. And two, then all bets are off. I mean, the U.S. military will do whatever they have to do to get those people back and or destroy the people that hold them. So to me, that's the real escalatory risk right now. And also just somebody miscalculating. You know, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah misunderstanding a message from Tehran or, you know, one of the many, many Syrian factions somehow getting involved. And now now you're in combat in the Russian held part of Syria or the Iranian held part of Syria. So I think the biggest escalatory risk right now is just a mistake. And what do you think the um, what do you think the U.S. intelligence system is, is telling us about the the potential for a, a cross-border conflict. A lot of concerns, obviously, about that if the Israelis overextend themselves or uh, act in a way that is just not even remotely reasonable, proportionate, not that you can really be reasonable in this sort of circumstance, to be fair. Um, you know, is the American uh, intelligence community sort of getting rumblings about the propensity for Hamas, uh, sorry, Hezbollah involvement or Syria. In your experience, what would you have? What what feelings would you have as someone in the CIA at that point? 
Well, so two things to say about that. One is, I think there's a kind of misperception in the world about the U.S. intelligence capabilities. And obviously, I'm not going to say anything here that's classified. And I've been out of it for 20 years, so I don't even know anything that's classified anymore. But the National Security Agency, of course, is our signal intel- signals intelligence organization. But they don't have tens of thousands of people in real time looking at screens about what's going on all over the world. Yeah, they're collecting massive amounts of data, but then they have to go back and search through it all when a crisis comes up like this. So there's a lot of searching of messaging from the last couple months going on, and they're, I'm, still, I'm sure they're still working their way through it. The other thing is, I think I mentioned this on somewhere yesterday, that especially since Afghanistan, but also the drawdown in, in Iraq, uh, my guess is, pretty well-informed guess, is that the the U.S. human intelligence sources on the ground in that part of the world are much weaker than they were before. And even before, historically, we've had to rely a lot on information collected by our uh, allied intelligence services. So, you know, on that logic, if if the Mossad and the Shin Bet are in the dark, or were in the dark, it's pretty likely <clears throat> that we were as well. So, I'm sure what's going on over at Langley at the CIA right now is they're trying to figure out, they're not only trying to collect as much real-time intelligence as they can and analyze it and, and tell the president what they think, but they're also trying to figure out how do we retune our systems to better collect whatever it is that we missed before the attack. And one last thing I'll say about this, you, you have to, so it's very easy to look at the crisis in Israel as a Israeli-Palestinian or a Western Middle East issue, which it is, very important, passions on all sides. You also have to put this in perspective of what our intelligence services in the United States and our government, our national security apparatus is dealing with, which is also massive support of the Ukrainians against Russia and collection, analysis, deterrence activities against China and Taiwan. So they are probably in a real crisis right now about how to allocate resources between those three things. Patrick, since you're back with us, I do want to get your take. I was asking Brian a little bit about the capacity for the intelligence community to really, particularly the US, to sort of keep up with things and whether or not, you know, all of us here on social media are freaking out or really, you know, understandably um, very concerned about the the possibility of this escalating. From From a military standpoint, you know, in your experience, how much is is is, is there a, a likelihood for that to happen? Uh, are we? Uh, is it largely dependent on the on what happens in Gaza, or is it just a case of the more we have warmongering sort of uh, pushes, the Israelis obviously have uh, you know a, a desire to respond? I'm just wondering what you feel about the the, the, the sort of the outlook in the in the media term. You know, I'm, I am frequently critical of the president. But he's put the U.S. in a position to respond. We've got a carrier group in the region. We've got another one on the way. We've reinforced U.S. Air Force assets across the Middle East. we got an amphibious ready group, the only one that's special operations capable on the move. So he's put us in a position that we have a lot of firepower that we can draw on. Whether we need to use that, and uh, Newsweek was very kind enough to quote me on this yesterday, is going to depend on what the players involved do in the, in the coming days and weeks. What does Hezbollah do? What does Iran do? What, what do the Jordanians do? The Jordanians look to be closing their border, but they seem to have some seepage. Their own people are coming over into the West Bank by early reporting. What does Egypt do? Most of these countries are probably going to sit it out, watch, and try to make sure it doesn't spill over into their own borders. 
But Iran is the wild card, and Iran needs to be thought of in relation to its proxies in the region. We saw Israel bomb Damascus and Aleppo airport yesterday. That was no accident. They're diverting assets from current operations to do that because they realize that if Iran's proxies in the region get involved, those two airports are going to be major logistics hubs. If we see Hezbollah move, President Biden has said, don't. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means the president could order retaliatory airstrikes in support of the IDF on a northern front. It could mean, and again, we've Lindsey Graham has gotten a lot of fire from this He's as a bit of a war hawk, and he is, but he made a very specific uh, recommendation that if Iran gets involved, their navy should be destroyed and their refineries should be bombed. Now, that would be a repeat of Operation Praying Manus in 83 when Reagan sent the Iranian Navy to the bottom of the Persian Gulf. But the, but the um, refineries would also limit their ability to generate their own funds and continue to fund this crap across the region. So really, this is going to depend on what does the president want to do in an election year? When And I'm sorry we got cut off as I was talking about this earlier. He has got to be seen to be strong on this going into the 2024 elections. He has to. The fact that he has enabled funding to Iran and directly to the Palestinians, a point which, you know, Secretary Blinken, the State Department, are now coming under increasing fire for. So, OK, so, OK, well, then that's a good time. That's a good turn, time to pivot uh, to the actual, well, operation event that it, it itself. What do you think, um, uh, Patrick, just keep sticking with you for the time being. So what do you think we're going to see? Um, I will be very quick in my outline, which is I think that the Israelis have little interest in sort of, you know, uh, going into Gaza and stopping at Gaza City and holding that as sort of a sub-siege within the siege. I think that they want to go in completely. They want to undertake pretty close uh, quarter uh, engagement um, and they want to, you know, probably try to minimize casualties. But at the same time, they are, you know, driven by uh, a degree of, you know, emotion and and and. and understandable desire for 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 vengeance so uh what what do you think is going to happen in the next uh and and if that is the case how long does this sort of thing take are there different phases will they try and section certain cities uh sections of the city off uh are there certain subgroups of the military that will focus on certain tasks could you take us through a little bit in your you know perspective what what how this could potentially play sure uh well the israelis have an advantage here they they almost surround gaza so if if they're going to do this then they're going to try to isolate the city and then move in on it, probably from what, probably from the north. I don't know that they will consider the reduction of civilian casualties as, as a primary in their in their rules of engagement. I don't know that that's the case. Defense Minister Gallant has specifically said that all restraints have been lifted, and if we take him at his word, that means that the preservation of Israeli life will take primacy, and that means using a lot of firepower, a lot of firepower in close quarters. Uh, this is going to be very, very ugly if if we assume that the Israeli rhetoric going into this is accurate, and we're about to find out if it is. I would expect the first part of this to look like a, a, a scaled-down version of the Battle of Berlin in '45, when the Soviets went through and just had to blast their way through block by block, street by street, and kill all opposition. And then once they've done that, they're going to have to secure the city. And they're going to and we may see it get sectioned off. It may end up looking like something similar to an upscaled version of what the French did now in Algiers in 56 and then and then 57, when they basically cordoned off the city, they smothered it in troops 
And then they went house to house. And this is the point where you really see the intelligence folks getting involved, especially in an on-the-ground sort of way. They're going to need to conduct interrogations. They're going to need to find out where the Hamas members they didn't get in the initial assault are hiding. They're going to need to find out where all the tunnels that they missed are, and they're going to miss some. This is going to be long. It's going to be very, very ugly. And the aftermath of the initial military assault, the actual occupation and sifting through the population to find everybody you need to find in order to accomplish the goal of, as the, as the prime minister said, destroying Hamas, that is going to take a while. And it's going to be equally politically uncomfortable for a lot of people in the international community because that's an ugly operation. That's dragging people out of their homes for interrogation. It's, it's not something that the West is going to be very comfortable with, which is why I do think, despite all the current rhetoric, Israel's also on a clock to do this, which makes it very dangerous for them. So just, okay, so there's quite a few uh, aspects to this, but, you know, the IDF is is a, is a very sizable force, 300,000. I mean, yes, most of those are reservists still, but... Uh, what what role and given your background in in, in the air force obviously th- 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 how, this has been obviously very meticulously planned in the sense of we're going to um flatten parts of the city we're going to uh, focus on uh, terrorist uh, hqs as i think the idf was referring to them specific buildings where hamas was apparently you know congregating to focus on intelligence efforts and and so on but then um, they want to obviously, um, well, th- th- let me rephrase that. They're going to have to navigate the the chaos that is now, uh, you know, the broken buildings, the, 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 the debris uh, around the city. And that may well play into the into the into the arms of uh, Hamas because of their asymmetrical approach to the warfare. Do you not think that potentially the the amount of strikes that we've seen over six thousand in in six days now uh, will could actually be a bit of a liability to the to the Israeli operation? Absolutely. A- anytime you really start bombing a city, and I mean Stalingrad is the classic example, but you can look at others. Monte Cassino in Italy, we basically carpet bombed a, an ancient monastery and allowed the German paratroopers to dig in. Anytime you do that, you're creating an environment that is just a nightmare to operate in. And urban warfare itself, and, and it's a pity we don't have John Spencer here, he could go into this, but urban warfare generally is three-dimensional. And that's one of the worst things about it. There are windows, there are sewers, you have to worry about what's above you, what's below you. You have to worry about every doorway, every window. It's it's manpower intensive, it's logistics intensive. Troops tend to use a lot of ammo uh, in an urban environment. And it's very, very deadly. Uh, when you start bombing that city and you create irregularities in what are, in what are normally fairly predictable architecture, it it only gets worse because you never quite know what's going to be around the next corner. You never know where somebody could be hiding. It it, it really does become a very, very lethal environment very quickly. Thank you for that. Um, Brian, you've been, you know, we've stuck with Patrick for a little bit, so I do want to bounce over to you since you gave us that pretty uh, seismic news. Um, what's your take on on Patrick's thoughts? And, and you know, I know you, you're working in a different sphere, but, well, I, I just, what, what are your takes? Well, I should say up front, I've never been quite at the sharp end of the spear, so to speak, and kudos to everyone who has and our gratitude to everyone who has. So, I, I'm not, I have not experienced urban warfare, but uh, everyone I've ever dealt with who has have said the exact same thing that Patrick used to ha- just said. And 
these soldiers are going to be under almost unfathomable pressure because I guess one place I would slightly disagree with Patrick is nobody knows this for sure, although we may know it in a few minutes. Uh, Despite what the Israeli defense minister publicly said, the soldiers are so trained in minimizing civilian casualties and in acting proportionally. And the government of Israel knows that the eyes of the world are on them, that I think they are still going to try to be as careful as they can with the civilian population, which means, and anyone who's served, correct me if I'm wrong, the soldiers themselves become that much more at risk. Because now you're not just thinking about killing the enemy and staying alive and protecting your team. You're also thinking about protecting the civilians. And, you know, lots of wartime, um, what in hindsight look like atrocities, uh, have been just due to the confusion and the fog of war and the inability to know who's friend or foe. So there's no way this doesn't get incredibly messy and deadly. And we're going to see horrific images uh, throughout. So I completely agree with all that. I still think, though, we talked about this uh, on another in another site, that the global perception of how this unwinds is going to be better. I'm not saying good, but it's going to be better with troops on the ground than with days or weeks or months of massive bombing. And the reason I say that partly is not a military analysis, but I've just seen this in so many different arenas I've worked in that there's something about a country putting their own people at physical risk that makes their cause seem more righteous. And I'll just give you one good example. Um, At the end of the Clinton administration, the early Bush administration, you can imagine there was a lot of debate about not just the legal issues, but the moral and ethical and public perception issues around killing Osama bin Laden and trying to destroy Al Qaeda. And under the law, there's nothing that is, I don't know what the right word is, worse, more culpable about, you know, shooting an individual who's part of a military chain of command than there is about dropping a missile on the person's tent like we did to Gaddafi in 81. But morally and ethically, it just feels less bad if your people are also in harm's way. And that's a big debate that we're having right now around drone warfare and autonomous warfare, too. I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, Patton said the object of war is not to die for your country. It's to make the other guy die for his country. And if you have a military advantage, it seems to me if you're in a war, you should take it. But public perception wise, that's got to be going through their minds. But Brian, staying with you, a couple of things I want to build on what you said. So drones, um, I I wish we had a a couple of colleagues of mine from uh, CSIS on the drone um, front on this. Um, But also um, you mentioned the, 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 the global element to it. So what so so i guess to frame the question a little bit with some context obviously hamas has changed its style of operations quite significantly in a few years and patrick i'd like your thoughts on that as a separate point maybe uh, when brian's um uh, given his thoughts but is the hamas has not had drones before they're, they've styled their their seemingly uh, response in this case to what hezbollah and israel engaged in 2006 7 um and they're much more potent as a force than i think everyone was expecting or thought they were um so what um what do you think brian the role of drones could have in this instance uh, and second uh, again from the intelligence framing as this continues and potentially the us the british 
others continue to support the operation with um, uh, with uh, with Israel. Do you think that that's going to uh, change the the optics increasingly put more pressure on the countries that support Israel outrightly, even if they overextend themselves, um, uh, particularly from, I mean, the surrounding Arab states. So those two uh, questions, if you uh, if you got them. Sure. And uh, since I mentioned the Fox News headline a couple minutes ago, I should give a quick update. Shockingly, CNN is slightly more nuanced in their reporting. Um, and they said Israeli troops have carried out local raids over the past day or so in the Gaza Strip, including infantry and armor. But then they go on to say that this was, these were primarily searches for hostages and to collect evidence and to thwart terrorist cells. So I defer to the military folks, but this may not be the actual invasion yet. Um, so just an update on that. Um, with regard to the drones, you know, there's there's two essentially, in my view, different kinds of drones one or three actually now ukraine has showed us this one is just collecting intelligence and i'm sure israel and iran have plenty of capability for this after all iran has been sending their drones to russia to help then there's strike drones which iran has also i think sent to russia then there's what i what i'm going to call the probably isn't the correct right term uh, patrick can correct me but electronic warfare drones so I think on the first category, the intelligence collection, <laughs> a week ago I would have said there's probably not that much need for swarms of drones to collect information because Israeli and Western intelligence is so good in that region. But at this point, who knows? I, it may be that that's going to play a big role. Uh, I doubt that the, Hamas has a huge force of those kind of drones. And if they do, I'm sure Israel's capable of knocking them out. The strike drones, I think, are going to continue to be a big deal. Um, and Iran could obviously supply Hamas with plenty of those unless they've given them all to Russia for uh, for Ukraine. But I think the most interesting thing is, is the possibility of both sides, um, but probably would benefit the asymmetric side, meaning Hamas more, of using drones just to create confusion, to confuse the Iron Dome system, to confuse, uh, you know, Israeli troops on the ground. Um, I don't. I know that Ukraine has done a fair amount of that, uh, and probably Russia has in Ukraine. But I don't know what the the local capability is of that. But I would expect that. I mean, Hamas is so outgunned that I think they're going to have to try to think of as many ways as they possibly can to create confusion. And frankly, their most powerful weapon right now, I, I believe, is to get the Israeli troops to make mistakes and kill a bunch of civilians and then they videotape it and they push it out as propaganda. So any tools they can use to create confusion, um, I think they will. And now I've forgotten your second question. Sorry. It's all right. I have a habit of overly uh, complicating my questions. I guess my main point was just, what do you think about the optics of this, the longer it continues, partially on the US and UK, who seem to be, again, wanting to be the arbiters of uh, peace and stability by getting involved, but then also from the re reception to the Middle Eastern states, I'm thinking specifically Jordan, Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia, the countries that have been trying to take more of a, a constructive role in, in, in pushing for mediation and hostage negotiations. Well, so speaking about the U.S. and the U.K., I just reiterate what I said before. I don't believe that Biden can afford any significant distance between the U.S. views and Israel's views unless there's some true, you know, crime against humanity that is documented. 
Um, you know, if there's a prisoner of war camp and they drop, I, mean, I don't even know if we use napalm anymore, but let's say they drop white phosphorus on a prisoner of war camp and that's documented. Then I think, you know, public opinion starts to shift a little bit. Um, and I assume it's the same in the UK, but I'll defer to you, Piotr and others. Um, in terms of the regional countries, I think the most interesting thing that's going to happen now, and frankly, I think it's been a reckoning that's been coming for at least half a century, is it's going to be pretty incumbent on Egypt and Jordan and the Arabs and Saudi and the other states in the region to really explain convincingly why the Palestinians should continue to be only an Israeli problem. And I'm not taking a position on that, but you know we've covered this many times elsewhere uh, and there's debate about the feasibility of this, but on paper, it sure looks like Egypt, uh, if, they, if they could get Israel to cooperate, could open the, that border and take a lot of the folks out of harm's way. Why aren't they? Well, there's obviously strategic political reasons for that, but I think they need a better explanation than we don't want a bunch of refugees. And so I think there's two huge things that are going to weigh on the local or the, the regional states. One, how come you're not doing more for the Palestinians? Two, to your point, um, do you or do you not support escalation? And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think they're very intertwined. I think the sort of moral authority to militarily aid the, 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 whatever turns out to be the opposition forces to Israel, whether it's Hezbollah plus Hamas or whatever mix, uh, they'll, they'll be in a stronger position to do that if they have also done things to help the humanitarian crisis. But again, that's not my area of expertise. But if I were sitting in my old job and trying to analyze it, that's what I'd be thinking about. Maybe in the, in the meantime, then, I would just say from my perspective on the British front, I, I'm not too familiar, really, with what extent the uh, the British military wants to get as involved with uh, troops on the ground. Uh, obviously, the SAS has got one of the longest standing um, legacies when it comes to uh, hostage acquisition, the Operation Nimrod of 1980 uh, being an example where they went in um, very specifically into the Iranian embassy to uh, free the hostages that the uh, the um, separatists i believe it was had uh, had tried to to do and hold them to account so the the the, the british do have a capacity for this but i it, it also keep i'm also aware of the um the relationship the uk has a few of the countries in the regions and i think that the government is attempting to increase its positive optics both abroad but at home uh, as we also have an election later next year and the uh, the talk conservatives having been in power for about 13 years are are, are absolutely being um uh, overrun in in the polls by the by the labor party and also also because uh, until this point Rishi Sunak has not really had a very clear foreign policy uh, and I do think he will be quite out of his depth uh, he's more of an economist technocrat type than he is really a um a thorough sort of foreign policy wonk. I appreciate you're not a military analyst, but as a someone who obviously has to inform military operations in over a longer term, what do you think we are talking about in terms of timescale? Is this uh, a few weeks, a couple of days? It all depends on the, you know, operations. And, and, and what's your feeling about this escalating to potential northern border engagements? So just take the second question first. I would be shocked if Israel takes any steps to escalate in the north unless they have absolutely no choice. The question really becomes what Iran is going to direct 
or allow Hezbollah uh, and other associated militias to do. And it's hard to say, but it looks to me from the strategic signaling, not just on our side, but on the Iranian side uh, also, and the other Gulf and other regional states, that they really don't want that. Um, they, they really, they, they, my sense is they would rather lose Hamas than lose Hamas plus Hezbollah plus put Iranian assets directly at risk from U.S. firepower. So I actually think if <clears throat> the IDF can go in, and again, as we've said many times, there will be horrific casualties on both sides. But if they can go in and, and achieve enough of their military objective of destroying Hamas's combat capability or destroying Hamas outright, um, if they can do that in weeks instead of months, I think there's a still a fair chance that we can avoid uh, you know, a regional war. But I'm not the expert on that. And uh, you know, a week ago, I would have never said Hamas could have done what they did. So Take that, take that with a grain of salt. I do think, though, that there is one other topic that I would at least love to hear people talk about, Piotr, and you, you alluded to it earlier, which is the role of misinformation and disinformation in what's going to happen. We've already seen this days-long debate about babies being beheaded. And to be honest, for the life of me, I, I don't understand people who are saying, well, they were only burned in their cars and handcuffed. They weren't really beheaded. And I only bring that up not to be controversial, but to say there's going to be a lot of deep fakes in this war and in future wars and in, in our elections coming up. And, you know, it would just take, to the question of escalation, it would just take a fake speech of Netanyahu saying something incredibly provocative uh, to be fed to Hezbollah to change this entire calculation. So I think it's really important for everyone who covers this war and speaks about it, including us, to be super careful about relying on any images and any videos that we see, because we've already seen some examples of this. You know, unfortunately, our president apparently misstated that he had seen photos. And that's, I think that's really a bad mistake on his part. And I you know, it's probably another reason we need somebody under 80 to be our president. But that's just a minor example of what could happen. And I don't think the either side is going to be shy about using disinformation. Yeah, I would say that one of the primary goals most analysts or people who are relatively familiar with this matter would agree on is that it was to uh, discontinue these negotiations. Um, and if that's the case, obviously it's multi, it's multifaceted and we can't fully ever tell what a group like Hamas was really seeking to achieve, um, other than the, maybe the, you know, removal of Israel as a state in the region. But I'll relay my uh, initial question to, to you, uh, from, uh, from Brian to you, which is, so, you know, we're moving into the, the, the next phase, right? We've had the, the airstrikes phase. We've had the obviously initial events. Now we're seeing the on the ground operation. What do you think we can expect in the next, uh, 24 to 48 hours, uh, and then maybe if you want to stretch out a little bit more, though, I appreciate it's hard to, uh, to, to, to speculate in that far. Well, over the past, what is it now, five or six days, we've seen increasingly heavy Israeli airstrikes and artillery against known Hamas positions within Gaza. Uh, obviously, that's included some very sensitive targets, which is where Hamas loves to put their command and control and uh, 
arsenal centers, going forward, they're going to have to start penetrating the city. And we've heard about these raids to secure hostages that may have been in the border region. That's good. Some of these were probably also reconnaissance and force and probing attacks. They're trying to figure out what their best avenues of advance are. And once they do that, they'll begin moving in earnest. Now, what that looks like is going to depend, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, on exactly how much firepower Israel's prepared to use. If they're prepared to use a lot, then we're going to see them start demolishing centers of resistance with precision airstrikes, with artillery, and the infantry is going to move in supported by you know armored vehicles as needed but it's going to be it's going to be a very ugly fight and how Hamas chooses to play this will be almost equally important do they contest the out, the uh, outskirts of the city or do they seek to suck the israelis in as deep as possible and then hit them it it really depends but it's this is going to develop fairly quickly once the israelis actually go in they may spend a day or so in these probing missions. And then after that, it's going to be an ugly little city fight. And how, how deep the Israel, Israelis want to go is going to determine how long it lasts. But to Brian's point on the Iran thing, I think he's exactly right. The Hamas, or, or excuse me, Iran could not countenance the, the, the alliance of the Sunni world and the Jews against their own nuclear ambitions. And the fact that they have now sundered what had been building through the Abraham Accords over the past couple of years was the goal. And unless their their aim here is far more broad than it sounds like either here, I expect, there's no reason for them to risk their other major proxy after they've already achieved the goal, which increases the chances that Hezbollah will stand down. Should we be, and I use these words very loadedly, optimistic or pessimistic? in the sense of, are we going to see this get worse? Obviously, Israel is going to do something, but should we be optimistic in the sense that it won't lead to further escalations elsewhere? Or or should we be more you know, realistic about this? Patrick, what do you think? Too sorry, soon. To, sorry to put you, sorry to ask you that, but I think it's important. <laughs> no, no, it, it's a fair question. Frankly, it's too soon to tell. Again, a lot of it's going to depend on what, is, what does Israel do? How serious is the rhetoric that we've been hearing? If it's serious, this gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. If this develops into just another punitive raid, then it's over much more quickly and, and with a lot less bloodshed. But again, I think it's too soon. All right. Thank you. Uh, and Brian? Well, I, I agree with Patrick 90%. The 10% makes me more pessimistic is I think that the statements by Netanyahu and by the defense minister and others, uh, they can't back off of this now politically and even reputationally. And in some ways, maybe in their mind, even morally, I think they have promised the Israeli people that they are going to destroy Hamas as a potential threat to Israel. And I don't see how they stop until they've done it. And that means I, I, I think it's more likely than not that this gets much, much, much worse before it gets better in the sense of death on both sides, destruction of the infrastructure of Gaza, you know, the decades long uh, effort that's going to be needed to rebuild that. The only 
place where I'm more optimistic than I was an hour ago or 15 minutes ago even is just what I said before. The fact that Iran has now achieved their main strategic goal of derailing the peace process, I think, makes it far less likely that this turns into a regional war. And also, I would say Russia is not free of involvement in this. They absolutely, I mean, I don't know how much they funded or directed. I'm not saying that, but they absolutely love the fact that the world's attention is diverted from Ukraine and there has to be, no matter how powerful the U.S. military is, some diversion of resources and, more importantly, attention from Ukraine to the Middle East. So from that standpoint, the U.S. is going to be strongly encouraging Israel to get this over with as soon as possible. So I think all of those things argue in favor of being slightly optimistic about a regional or a world war, but make no mistake, it's going to be horrific. Um, thank you for that. And, and I, you know, I don't want to end on that note because it's no one wants to really think about the, the horrendous destruction that war can entail. Uh, I mean, you, you, you have to mention Russia and, and, now, and now you want me to start off all over again. But I, I will refrain from, from that. <laughs> so I, I think going from here, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, difficult to, to sustain two fronts. But I would also say that Russia, I'm not entirely sure, is as involved as some would, would suggest. It, to me personally, it goes against their strategical and self-interest within the region. And like any big power, frankly, uh, some of the focus is on the great power competition. Um, I don't personally think that Russia wants to uh, perpetuate instability uh, in a region that already is very volatile. Uh, most countries like stability simply because it allows them to, well, get on with what they want to do. Thank you very much, listeners. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate this. This was a, a sudden but emergency, I think, episode of the Global Gambit. I shall, uh, I shall see you in the next episode.